0: want to start our time by asking you a kind of provocative question. What does faith mean to you? Like, how do we actually have it? How do we live it? How do we not lose it? How do we be people marked by it? See, I, I realized that I had a Very minor oversight, which is, we spent five weeks on a series called Faithful, and yet I never once defined what faith actually is. Again, minor oversight, so I am trying to remedy that today by talking about faith. How do we become people of faith? See, this is our final sermon in this series where we talk about faithfulness from every angle. God's faithfulness to you, you to God, church to you, you to the church, God to the church. And finally today, we are talking about the church's faithfulness to God. And as we looked at Faithful, what we've done is also looked at the Hebrew people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, enslavement in, you know, in Egypt, Moses, Exodus. We have looked at the story and the people of God, even Joshua in the Promised Land, and we've continually mapped on and said, how does this apply to us? How does the story that God wrote in the Bible map onto the story that God is writing in each of our lives? And so to finish our time, I want to go all the way back to the beginning, to Abraham's call to follow God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. This is right after Abraham uh, almost sacrificed his only son, Isaac. It is this wild story. There's a lot in there. At some point in my life, I want to preach a sermon on it because it's so amazing and beautiful, if you're willing to dig into it. Uh, But Genesis 22, verse 17, after uh, Abraham is willing to trust God this fully, uh, willing to kind of go all the way to the brink of this moment of really trusting that God is faithful and true, that God promised that Isaac would be uh, his legacy, which means I truly believe that Abraham uh, was believing that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if Isaac died. That's not even the sermon. I just love this text. All right, Genesis 22, verse 17, this is what we see. God responds to Abraham by saying this, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Now today, as we talk about the church's faithfulness to God, I want to talk specifically about faith and faithfulness to God and what we're invited into from this passage alone. Because from the very beginning, God's plan is pretty clear. God's plan, according to Abraham, according to this text right here, was to create a people, a nation, a family, to walk in his ways so that all the nations of the earth may be blessed. God's mission from the very beginning was to bless and reconcile all of creation back to himself. And God chose to do that through people, fallible people, which is a wild idea in and of itself. But what I love is that God is able to really fully bless the nations, fully bless the people when, according to this text, the people of God obey his voice. What we would say is that God is able to use people as a blessing when we walk by faith. And, th- and I'm here to tell you, family, like, that's how God still works. It's not like he... You know kind of worked that way with abraham and then now today he doesn't operate that way anymore We even see that we're invited into this story of walking by faith Exhibiting the faith and being a blessing to the nations when paul picks up these ideas in galatians And begins to kind of weave in this story of how we are invited into this galatians 3 7 says this Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of abraham and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us if you are not of Jewish descent, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you count how many times faith was in that passage? Four. Four. Four times, over and over and over, it almost seems like Paul's trying to drive something home, right? That it is by faith we are saved, and it is by faith that the mission of God partners with humanity and moves forward. But the question still remains, what the heck does faith actually mean? Because people throw it around all the time. And again, I oftentimes feel like I'm like, you don't actually know what you're talking about. Like That's actually not what the definition is, right? So the working definition that I oftentimes hear people, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, agnostic people of other faith traditions, I oftentimes hear this kind of working definition of faith, that faith is believing propositions you can't prove, right? Something that you can't prove, but that you go like, I just have faith, right? Let me just be very, very clear. That is not what Abraham exhibited. That is not what Jesus taught. And that is not what the Bible talks about. Yes, there are maybe facets that we can't fully prove, but that is actually not what the Bible teaches faith is. Matthew Bates, if you want to learn about faith, Dr. Matthew Bates literally spent a decade writing books on just the idea of faith. I've read three of them. I never thought I would read three books just on the idea of faith alone. But he says this, for many today, faith is defined as the opposite of evidence-based truth. Those things you can't prove. This is neither a biblical nor a Christian understanding of faith. And when we do this, family, when we set up this paradigm, this framework, we do this at our own peril. Because what then happens is if we say, hey, faith means that for you to actually encounter Jesus, for you to actually live a life of faith what that means is you need to check your brain at the door and you need to come in here and be spoon-fed by a pastor a bunch of ideas that you're not even sure if you agree with, but you have to believe in faith, then what does that mean for every other person after you who wants to encounter Jesus? they got to check their brain at the door and they got to come in here and they got to learn a bunch of ideas that they're not even sure if they fully agree with, but they got to take it on faith. We do this at our own peril. We do this to the detriment of our fellow men and women. So let me just come right out and say it. At its core, biblical faith is not informational. Biblical faith is relational. Let me say this again. Biblical faith is not informational. Biblical faith is relational. Now let me unpack this. Because do we put our faith in facts? Do we put our faith in ideas? Do we put our faith in... In theology? Do we put our faith in doctrine? No, at the end of the day, according to the scriptures, we put our faith in a person. Namely, we put our faith in Jesus. And we do this not by knowing a bunch of facts about Jesus, but by knowing Jesus, right? So we do this by hearing about his life, encountering his teachings, understanding his truths through the Gospels, reading about his early followers, understanding how his spirit was sent down and empowered his local church, learning about church history, learning about people, but then recognizing that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is available to us and encountering the presence of the living God, encountering the spirit of Christ today and being swept up and carried along in what Jesus is doing today. Because what he said was that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And behold, I will be with you all till the end of the age. Do you think that he was just kind of like joking? Right. His presence is available to us today. It is from that relationship. Hear me. Yes, there are facts and ideas, and concepts that we must understand. I have two degrees in theology. I fully recognize that there is a lot of thinking that is involved, but theology does not save. Only Jesus does. I mean, and even if if we were willing to even dig a little bit in the Bible, we see that this is like deeply, deeply rooted in the biblical story. Like just to give y'all a little bit of of concept, one piece of this, the Greek word, for uh for faith is the word pistis can everyone say pistis 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 Pistis, yes means faith but it also means trust commitment or reliability do you hear how those are not informational words only but also relational words That there's this dynamic at play. Yes, there is some information as any relationship, but what we are invited into is not to know a bunch of ideas. We are invited into a faithful, trusting, committed, reliable relationship. And so because faith has kind of been hijacked to kind of, like, be ideas that you can't prove and that you kind of look foolish by believing, I actually have started using a different word whenever I talk about faith with people. And the word that I've come to love is the word allegiance. Allegiance. That allegiance is that invitation to that reliable, trusting relationship In his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, again, Dr. Matthew Bates, if you ever want to read it, it's like 700 pages. It is thick, thick boy, but it is amazing, amazing. Completely reworked my understanding of what the New Testament was inviting us into. But he says this As such, faith in Jesus is best described as allegiance to him as king. Because we talk about it here all the time. The gospel is not that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. That is a piece of the gospel, but that is not the gospel. At the core of the gospel is the truth and understanding that Jesus is the rightful, sovereign king over all of creation and that he is bringing his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of earth to establish a new creation as he has defeated the enemies of God and as he is reconciling all of creation to him, our faithfulness to God is how God is able to use us to bless the nations, like he said all the way at the beginning. And so when we place our allegiance, our trust, our faith that Jesus is king and I am not, then what we are also saying is I am willing to be about what you're about. I'm willing to learn and relearn how you view the world. I'm willing to grow in better understanding how do I love my neighbor whenever I can't stand them. I'm willing to learn about what does it mean to be about biblical justice and mercy in our culture when so often those words are hijacked, and I'm not even sure how to make my way forward, but I'm trusting and believing and hoping that you promised you would always be with me, and so I want to know more about you because you're my king, right? That's the invitation that we have of allegiance And I pray that after everything we've talked about, right? We've spent five weeks talking about faithfulness. I pray that you understand, not only in your mind, but in your soul, how faithful, how steady, how reliable, how trustworthy Jesus is to us. And that when we experience, when we understand, when we actually see Jesus' faithfulness to us, then our only proper response is to respond in what? What? faith to respond back in the faithfulness he's shown us and so it seems to me that in the church we continue in the faith of Abraham and when we live in faith we can't help but be used by God to bless the nations we are tools of God's love and goodness and reconciliation in the world now as I started thinking about this idea of like what does it mean to like kind of be be used by God in the blessing of the nations in the kingdom of God I realized that I need to start my time by having a little bit of a confession. I am not the most handy man in the world. I know, that's a shocker. <laughs> Uh, I know some of you are already like, oh, we gotta take his man card away from him. Like he just confessed in front of 100 people that like he's not handy. I'm not that handy. And I say that to say like, I have actually bared the brunt of not being handy and not having the right tools in the right circumstance. So McKinnon and I bought our first apartment in Seattle and they had this really gnarly, nasty flooring. And so for two weeks, every day after Were we in grad school at that time? Yeah, we were in grad school and also working full-time. So every day that I come home at like 9 p.m., I would spend like two or three hours tearing up this flooring. It was backbreaking work. Did it for about two or three weeks. Finally, I have a, a work party, and a bunch of my buddies come over to help like paint the walls and finish things up. And one of my buddies works in construction professionally. And he comes in, and he goes, Yo, bro, uh... He was like, oh, you're tearing up your flooring, cool. He's like, I can help, where, like, where's your scraper? And I was like, what's a, what's a, what's a scraper? And he was like, it's the, the thing that pulls up flooring, like, really easy, like, do you, where is it, I'll help. And I was like, um, yeah, I don't have one of those. And he was like, what have you been using? And I very sheepishly pull up a chisel and a hammer. And I'm just like, and he just doubles over laughing, like, what is your problem? And then he was like, how long have you been at this? And I was like, two weeks? And he was like, oh, God, what? Why would you do that to yourself? And I was like, and I'm like, how long would a little scraper? He's like, I don't know, two or three hours, and I'm just like dying inside. (laughs) And so again, as a self-respecting man, I had my final kind of, my final like, you know, Hail Mary, and I went, "Whoa, whoa, 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 I mean, how much do like the floor scrapers like how much do they cost right like i don't know and he was like dude they're like 35 bucks at lowe's and i just like almost started throwing up you know because (laughs) because my buddy is there and i think i have like three square feet left and he was just like dude why didn't you call me like two weeks earlier and so i'm here to tell you that i have learned my lesson and i have really decided i'm going to have the right tools for the right job. Now, I actually, over the last couple of years, I bought, we, McKenna and I bought a house, and I was like, I need some good tools to take care of my house. And so I actually brought some of my tools in. Anyone know, anyone know what this is? What is it? It's an impact driver. According to YouTube. It's very useful and driving fasteners. Fasteners is a masculine, fancy way of saying screws. (laughs) But apparently, we call them fasteners. Um, And so I say this, I bought this fastener, or this, this impact drill, to actually have those times where if I have some dang fasteners, that I can drive them with all confidence that I'm doing the right thing, right? Yet, here's the problem. Can you imagine if you are ready to build something, or in my case, hang a picture, right? Um, And I have my impact driver, and yet, what's missing? Battery. How useful is an impact driver without a battery? Like, can you imagine if I was like, I mean, knowing me, I probably would, right? Like, I'd be like, (laughs) I guess this is how we do it, right? (laughs) Can you imagine how frustrating it would be to try to build something where something's in your hand, something's ready to go, but that thing that actually empowers it is missing? Now this is kind of a cheesy illustration, but I'm very proud of my power tools, so let me have this one, okay? (laughs) What I recognize is that we are called to be tools in God's hand, to be faithful to God, to be actually engaged with God, to actually, what did we talk about last week? The presence of God, right? That we are in his hand, we draw near, his grace is empowering us. And yet, if God is wanting to build something, what we need is the battery, if I can get it out of my pocket. Of faith, right? Because faith is actually saying, I trust you. Faith is actually saying, I believe you. Faith is actually saying that I actually am allowing you to use me the way that you want. I know it's cheesy, I know it's corny, just let me have this, right? But I say this because here's the deal. If we actually have this fresh battery of faith, of placing our full trust, full allegiance, full reliance, on the one who's holding us, to be used by him, to trust that even he has the blueprint of what he is building, even when we don't see the full picture, then what that means is that through faith, we are actually fully allowing God to build whatever he wants. And sometimes this is really easy, right? When my marriage is good, when my house is nice, When my bank account's full, when my job is working, when my health is good, it's really easy to go, God, I have faith. Come use me however you want. Let's build your kingdom, baby. Let's go. But what happens when death gets too close to home? What happens when cancer gets way too close to home? What happens when pain or suffering It's way too close to home. What happens when you lose your job? What happens when your marriage is difficult? What happens when your singleness is extra lonely? What happens when war breaks out? What happens when you see injustice and oppression all around you? What happens in those moments is really where faith is active, right? Because what did we say all the way week one? We don't call people faithful when things are easy. When do we use the word faithful? It's when it's hard, right? So, when we place our faithfulness, our trust, our allegiance in Jesus, faith is saying, I don't need to see the whole blueprint. I don't know how you're gonna use this. I don't know why this is happening, but I would rather press in and be present with you and allow you to build your kingdom in and through me than for me to disconnect from you, to not have the life source, not have the energy that I actually need, and for me to try to build my own kingdom without a blueprint. And I'm I, like, I believe today that the, some of you, like you're showing up to church you're, 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 you're kind of doing the Christian thing, but there is that full surrender and allegiance and trust that Jesus is inviting in, you into today. Hmm. The word bitterness just came to mind. I don't know if some of you have anger or bitterness, but that bitterness, like that anger towards the injustice of someone else, Like, has actually calcified, but now it's that thing that, like, kind of keeps you warm at night. I would actually say, if that's you, like, I think Jesus is actually inviting you to lay that down. Yeah. Faith and allegiance is saying yes to God, saying yes to God using you and partnering with God and building whatever He wants to build. So the question is then, if that is, if that's the call of faith, then the question is like, what's actually the work? What is God actually building? Like what, do we, do we have any idea of what the blueprint is? And I would say, yeah, I think the Bible actually gives us quite a bit. But I would say if I could kind of encapsulate what is God actually building? What is the Holy Spirit actually empowering? What are people actually called to? It is to gospel-centered movements. Notice that I didn't say church buildings. I didn't say Bible studies. I didn't say, you know, all the good things, soup kitchens, all of those are good and right and part of gospel-centered movements. But what I'm talking about is a little bit bigger than that. Because the church's faithfulness to King Jesus is when we partner with him, are empowered by faith, are empowered, like we said last week, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, to partner with God in the building of his kingdom. Because Jesus was super, super clear at what the mandate was, Jesus was super clear at what he is about. Matthew 28 gives us a perfect example of what Jesus is doing. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you hear our King speak? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you hear how much movement is in this text? It's not just, I mean, first off, just like the authority of our king, and then second, his promise of his power and his presence as we go to do what he's he's called us to. But if all authority has been given to our king, and then he sends us out as ambassadors under his authority. He even bestows us with spiritual authority. He is calling us to do what according to this text? To bless the nations like we saw all the way back in Genesis 22. To bring people into his family. To make disciples. To be active in justice, mercy, evangelism, healing, and the reconciliation of all things under the name and banner of King Jesus. And we do this Yes, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit like we see, back, like we see in Acts 1.8, but we also do this through the power of the gospel. And the word, again, gospel gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles, and I figure if we're defining words today, I might as well just throw an extra one in, right? Because yeah. if faith is allegiance that Jesus is king, then the gospel is the message of that allegiance and the invitation for others. Right, so gospel, the euangelion in Greek, people often translate it as good news. And I'm kind of like, okay, what does that actually mean in my life? Is this good news that my food is ready as a restaurant? Is this good news that my grandmother actually got healthy and, and, and like is healed because she was sick? Like what good news are we actually talking about here? So let me give you what in Jesus's original hearers, what they would have heard when they heard the word euangelion. Because what happens back in Jesus' time is Rome was expanding its territory all the time, and Rome would actually kind of bring new territories, they would defeat old kings and bring territories into the Roman Empire. And then what they would do is they would send out ambassadors to that town square, to that township, to those local people and say, behold, Prepare the way your rightful king is about to come into your presence. You used to be part of this kingdom, but now you are part of the kingdom of Rome. He has fought for you, and he has freed you, and now you are, experience- you are willing to experience all the blessing that the Roman Empire has to offer you. This is what euangelion meant in that time. So in the same way, When Jesus says, go and preach the gospel, he's saying, go and tell people your rightful king is here. Go and tell him of the good news of victory in battle, that I waged war against sin and death and the devil and the ways of the world, and I defeated them, and now you're free. Now you get to be a part of my kingdom. Now you get to experience my goodness, my blessing, my hope, my healing, my power. It's all available to you. It's a little bit different than just this disembodied idea of good news, right? The rightful king is here. And when we do this, family, like when the gospel is actually preached When actually what we see all through the Bible, all through Acts, all through the early church, all through church history, when the gospel is actually preached, when people actually take Matthew 28 seriously, movements spark. It goes viral as disciples make disciples that make disciples, right? We talk about this here, like if you were discipled by someone and you've never discipled anyone else, then you're not a disciple, you're a consumer, Right? The call of Christ is that once we have been shown his rhythms, his ways, his worldview, his perspective, our call is then to find those other people and say, dude, your rightful king is here and available. Will you find the freedom and hope and healing that he's offering to you? When this happens, healings break out, miracles break out, deliverance breaks out, baptism breaks out. And I'm telling you, whenever the gospel is preached and the people of God actually live in gospel-centered movements, people change, marriages change singleness, is change, singleness changes, families change, neighborhoods change, cities change, counties change, nations change, and all across the world, we've seen time and time again where gospel-centered change shifts the landscape because of the faithfulness of the family of God to be conduits of God's blessing, love, reconciliation, and power. And hear me, like, a gospel center movement is not just about preaching, right? Thank you, my, ke- my wife. <laughs> I mean, hear me. I love my job. And proclamation is important, right? Someone does need to go to the city square and say, hey, the rightful king had victory in battle. But I'm here to tell you that what we are invited to is much, much more than just sitting in a bunch of rows and listening to a long-winded sermon. Amen. Right? You can say amen with my wife. It's okay. She did it. So she broke the seal. Hear me. Like, if you hear nothing else, just hear this. The best apologetic, the best defense, the best proclamation for the gospel is not good preaching, is not good doctrine, is not good theology, good music, good programs, or good-looking church buildings. The best defense, the best proclamation of the gospel is an encounter with the living God. God. Right? Because what happens then is when people come in and if you're here today and you're dealing with pain, addiction, strained relationships, mental health, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, despair, and then something shifts where something divine touches you, begins to heal you, begins to speak faith and hope to the hopelessness, begins to speak peace to the anxiety, begins to bring healing and forgiveness to that bitterness that you've allowed to take root, that what is happening happening in those moments is that people are still tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. They're tasting and seeing that the king who is a healer is actually still healing. That the king who promised his presence is still guess what? present. When people place their allegiance in a loving, healing, powerful king then the people of that king become ambassadors of his healing and love and power. And I was reminded of how powerful like images and, and ideas that, that can be used both for good or for ill. Like McKinnon and I were at a wedding, a 15-hour wedding uh, the other day. And I was reminded at how powerful weddings are, how powerful marriages are both for good and for bad. Because I've met people, I've met people who are like, yeah, I'm not into marriage, not into weddings, not into like, I'm not into marriage. Uh, and this isn't 100% across the board, that I've met people who, who, who were called to singleness and that is good, but, but most people who are called to singleness are not antagonistic towards marriage, they just feel called by God to singleness and we honor that and, and actually like hold that up as an act of leadership in the church, right? But the people who I see that are kind of like anti-marriage, oftentimes what I've seen is, as appropriately as I can, and as the relationship kind of develops, I see that oftentimes what has come is they have actually experienced the pain trauma of a really nasty marriage in their life. Whether it's their parents, their friends, even theirs, they had a first marriage, that oftentimes I kind of, you, you look under the hood and people have looked and seen really hard, dehumanizing, abusive, traumatic marriages. And they kind of go, I'm out. And I get it. I've seen those marriages. And it puts a bad taste in my mouth too. And I'm married. Right? And yet, I have to ask in those times, like, and maybe, some of, maybe that's you for some of you. But there are also those marriages that, yes, put a bad taste in your mouth and kind of showcase all the wrong things in marriage. But then, have you ever seen those marriages that inspire you? Those marriages that make you believe in love again. I remember one time I was, uh, my dad surprised me whenever I graduated high school to take me on a trip to Europe. And we were roughing it, staying in in hostels, and it was awesome, and I loved it. And we were kind of like dirtbag backpackers for a few weeks. And there was one day where we were, I think we were in France. And we of course did what you do in France. We bought a baguette and cheese for breakfast because that's what you do, right? And we went and sat near this fountain. And we were kind of sitting on the fountain kind of eating a baguette and cheese. And while we were there, I saw these, we were at this, the top of this massive hill, this really steep hill. And at the very bottom were these figures kind of popped out and they slowly, Started walking up the hill. And I just kind of watched him that morning. And as they kind of came into view, what I saw was probably a man in his late 80s, early 90s, with his arm out and his other arm kind of around her shoulder, steadying and helping his wife up this massive hill they slowly walked up together. And I was 17, 18 at the time, and my dad leaned over to me, and he just went, that's what love looks like. And that image still to this day like gets me teary-eyed. I cried every time I read this sermon. This is the first time I'm holding it together, but it still to this day was such this provocative image of the faithfulness, of the commitment, of the love of these two people that are bowed over, stooped over, holding each other up as they walk up this massive hill together. But in that moment, what struck me is that love is real and that what we're called to, because again, the scriptures use the image of being the bride of Christ, of being married to Christ, that we actually are invited to be that emblem of God's love to be beacons of that, right? And there's power in that, which how many Christians do we know who are really bad beacons of God's love, right? It's like the marriage that kind of puts the bad taste in your mouth. There's an invitation here, again, for us to operate and for us to be the beacon, the bastion, the lighthouse, to showcase, like a marriage, what God's love and reconciliation looks like. And as we continue to serve faithfully, love outrageously, be reconciled to Christ, we get to be partners with him. I'm like, what's the most famous scripture in the Bible? John 3.16. I would assume many of us can probably like recite that by heart, but do you ever actually read the words? I want to read it to you again, and I'm going to read it slowly, because I I want it to sink in. For God so loved the world. For God so loved... that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Family, do you get that we're invited to be witnesses of God's love? We get to be partners of God's love, not God's condemnation, right? Right? by having our allegiance in Jesus, we partner with God in this healing story that God's been writing since the very beginning. And so in closing, you may be asking, like, what does this actually look like, and where does this all, like, where is this all going, right? And so there's two final scriptures I want to close with today. The first one reveals how sometimes there are those things that fight and vie for our attention and our allegiance to Jesus, our loving commitment and faithfulness to this relationship. Because what I don't want you to hear today is like, okay, family, go have more faith. Go get them, right? Like, that's not helpful. So what does actual faithfulness actually look like? And again, the scriptures offer this brilliant, visceral image of what faithfulness looks like. I've read this scripture Dozens and dozens of times, and this week it just wrecked me. Jesus is at a, at a party, and someone comes and, and kind of crashes the party, but shows us something incredible in the process. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at a table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In point the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel, the good news, the euangelion is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And I've read this and read it and read it. And it was the first time today there was a reflection that absolutely challenged me to my core. Because this woman crashes a dinner party with Jesus, shocks the disciples by pouring out her whole life savings. This was utterly shocking to everyone. They thought she should have stewarded her money better. But I ask you have you ever been in this woman's position? Have you ever been misunderstood because of your devotion to God? Have you ever felt the weight of others' discomfort or disapproval? Have you ever sat in church and maybe not raised your hands too too high, scared of kind of making other people uncomfortable or maybe your own discomfort? Have you ever been marginalized and overlooked because you're just a little too overboard for Jesus? Family, this woman, this nameless woman, is what allegiance, devotion, loyalty, and love looks like. By pouring out everything on the feet of Jesus, giving everything over to our king, being fully bought into him and what he is doing and being about his kingdom, his honor, his glory forever and ever. This woman is a symbol, a sign of being fully and utterly in love with Jesus. And when we do that, like this is the beautiful thing, is when we do this, when the church actually can do this, because because the Lord already promised in Genesis 22 that he was going to bless the nations, and if we got on board, that he would use his people along the way. And what we see at the very, very end of Scripture is God fulfilling his promises. Revelation 7, we have this incredible, incredible passage. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, let it be so blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is what we were created for, family. This is who we are. This is what we are invited into. If we are fully faithful to Jesus, will we actually have that moment where heaven touches earth? Because what did Jesus pray in the Lord's Prayer? On earth as it is where? In In heaven. This is what's happening in heaven. This is our destiny. This is our inheritance. Why aren't we doing it here? And so if we're fully faithful, then I'm gonna ask you a challenging question. Today, what is that thing that you need to pour out on the the feet of Jesus because it's getting in the way? What is that thing? To be fully committed, fully trusting, fully in, even if people misunderstand, even if people are unsure, even if people don't get it. And then I would say, in that, once we pour out those things that are getting in the way, how are we willing to trust that God has the blueprint and that whatever he's building is better than whatever we could build by ourselves? How are we working to bring heaven to earth? How are we praying for and pressing in to the reconciliation of all races, tribes, languages and tongues for us to be unified in the singular worship of jesus the faithfulness of partnering with god and blessing the nations because here's the deal family like i want to be a part of that and not in five years not in 10 years not whenever i die i want to be a part of that today because i think that's what god is inviting us into that each one of us is uniquely equipped and empowered, and is invited to bring that reality today. So here's the deal, family. I can't answer those questions. I can't answer what that thing is that you need to pour out on the feet of Jesus. I can't answer that thing that is kind of blocking you from being all in. But the Holy Spirit can.